Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Stansberry, the host of the Austin Common Radio Hour. Um, I hope you all are doing well and are safe. Um, on, on today's episode, we thought we would take a quick break from our Policing in Austin series in order to bring you some information that might be helpful in this time. Um, really want to talk about um, electricity and what the heck went wrong and what ERCOT is. <laughs> and so for that, we've got our own producer, John Hoffner, with us. Hi, John. Hello, Amy. I'm glad you're <laughs> You're well and happy and smiling today after all this crazy stuff. Yes. And so John, um, actually, you know, when he, in his day job and his like expertise is all around energy. John, you've worked in um, energy for years and years around solar and you even worked at Austin Energy. Um, when did you work at Austin Energy? Well, I, I worked at Austin Energy for 14 years from 1983 to 1997. So quite a long time of being in the electric utility industry. But yeah, like you say, I did focus on renewable energy, but I do have at least a grasp and an understanding of the utility industry having worked in it. So. Great. So we're going to ask you questions today then, because <laughs> <Okay, laughs> I've got fun. a bunch of questions too. Okay. Um, yeah. So to start is the big one, most basic. What is ERCOT? This is like the word that's been flying around on social media and the news, just like Big picture, what is ERCOT? Yes. So l- let me start kind of way back and, and okay. kind of bring the history up to, to kind of put it into context. So really, uh, you know, the first electric utility started in really the 1800s. 1870 was the first time they really had any kind of distribution of electricity to customers. Hmm. But the utility industry didn't really take off the way it, it is today to, to give a, you know, the structure that they are until like the post-World War II. And really at that time, electric utilities were what we call vertically integrated, which means they were, you had a power plant, you had the, they owned the distribution lines, the transmission lines, and, you know, the way we get electricity, which is really the way we've been getting it for hundred years is you have a big, huge power plant out in the middle of somewhere, you you make electricity, you step it up to a high voltage, and then through transmission lines, you bring it into the cities or where you need it, and then you step it down the voltage, and then you distribute it through what's called the distribution system that gets to your house, and then you have a mm. meter, a meter on your house, and that's how you get it to to the to the public. So at, at the time in the in the forties and fifties and sixties, utilities were regulated monopolies. What that means is that they were every utility was given a service territory, and you they said you are obligated to serve those people electricity. You had a had a dis, you, you were a regulated monopoly, so you're protected from any kind of competition. You have okay. this service territory that you have to put, you put power plants in, or if you're what's called a, you know, just a distribution company, you buy the electricity and then you sell it to your customers. So being a regulated monopoly, they didn't have to compete with anybody. And in fact, they didn't want to compete with anybody. They, they had their service territory and, and they made money and everything was fine. And when they needed to get a rate increase because they were going to build a power plant, they would go to what's called the public utility commission for each one of the states. And that was the way it was in Texas. The public utility commission would say, okay, your area is growing. You need to build a power plant and, and to keep that level of reliability. And so that's the big word, reliability. Yeah. Right? The public utility commission said, you shall serve, you will have a monopoly, but you also have to be reliable. 
And Got so it. Um, what happened is in the 1960s and actually exactly in 1965 was a huge uh, blackout um, in the Northeast. Mm. Um, it, it brought down a huge part of Canada, you know, all of New York and, and basically the Eastern states all were in blackout for a long time. And, and they had major issues. It was mostly due to hot weather. Um, mm. So there were, you know, they had problems on the streets and just, it was, it was really bad. After that, they said, okay, we need to figure out some way to increase reliability throughout the United States. And so they developed what they call these power pools. And, mm. and again, this is a time when, and this was in, in this late sixties, when it was still not regulated. I mean, it was, it was all regulated and it was cooperative. So all the utilities, you know, they, they would help each other out and it was more of a, a cooperative time period. And so they built these power pools where they said, okay, the Northeast or the Eastern part of the United States was one big power pool with connections to the, the Western part of the United States, which was another power pool. Texas was all by itself, decided they didn't, they were going to be their own power pool. And then there was another one up in Canada, which was Quebec and, and Canada was the other part of the Northeast or North, North American power pool. So that was really in 1970 when ERCOT formed. And okay. So, and so power pools, just to be clear real quick. So mm -hmm. power pool, the idea would be that you could share power if needed. Exactly. Is yeah. that what a pool is? Okay. Got it. Right. Right. And so that the concept goes back to that time where they had the big blackout. Got they it. Said, well, if everybody was interconnected and that's the key, they put these big transmission lines and tie lines that connected all the power pools together so that if all of a sudden the Northeast were call, was calling and saying, oh, we have a major need for power, power plants are down, you could ship power from the southern part of the U.S. up Got into, it. to the Northeast and vice versa. And so it all becomes what's called one big grid, but broken up into different power pools. So Texas, for various reasons, decided that they wanted to be their own, quote, power pool and not be regulated by the federal, um, what's called the federal Egg, federal energy regulatory commission, and they have jurisdiction over all the other power pools because you have interstate uh, exchange of electricity. If you don't have any interstate commerce, the federal government can't uh, tell you what to do. So, Tex it. so Texas formed what they're, they call the, the ERCOT, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, and that was formed in 1970. And the irony of it is there were three employees at that time of ERCOT. And what, <laughs> and what ERCOT's role was at, at that time was to coordinate all the electric utilities in Texas and, and mainly what we called investor-owned utilities. And those are the utilities that were uh, fully regulated at the time by the Public Utility Commission of Texas, who has the regulatory um, control. ERCOT, even at that time, all they were, it was a voluntary um, coordination to get involved in it. Your utility, like Austin Energy was a member, all the big investor-owned utilities, which covered other parts of the state, uh, were part of it. And it was a collective uh, organization to keep, again, reliability so that they, they would set standards and say, well, okay, 
Austin Energy, you can provide this much electricity, but we want you to have this amount of electricity, a certain amount, always available. It's called spinning reserve. In mm. case something happened in the rest of the state, they could ship power to that. So all of ERCOT is, is interconnected. And, and one, one important point is it doesn't cover all of the state of Texas. There are parts up in the panhandle that are in what's called the Southwest Power Pool. And El so, Paso too, right? I think El Paso, El Paso is, El Paso part, is, yeah. is part of the Western area uh, pool. So essentially, ERCOT was formed to, again, increase reliability, kind of coordinate all the utilities um, so that when we would have maybe a problem in northern Texas, you could ship power from Austin Energy and everybody shared. And again, it was a regulated monopoly. In 1978, um, the, uh, an act called the Public Utility Regulatory Policy Act came into play. And what that was for is to allow people to produce their own power. That was when renewables really were at even ever, ever even thought about because before that, all the regulated utilities said, I am the only one that can produce electricity in my service territory. Mm. Nobody can come in and compete. You can't even put something on your house, make your own electricity and put it back into the grid. So 78 allowed renewables to be connected to the grid. So that was the first sort of push to get these monopolies uh, not, not broken up a little bit, but if, if giving people the ability to produce their own power. So, and that would be when you say people like in the seventies, you really were talking about people. Like that would be an individual who was like mm -hmm. a tinkerer wanted to try, you know, mm -hmm. wanted yeah. to try that renewable energy thing. Kind of our early pioneer people. These I, weren't like big power solar pants or anything. Exactly. Right. Got it. That, but it, what that did is that that was the first measure that allowed people to be mm -hmm. able to later on develop large wind power plants. It, it, it made it so that you could compete. But really, the, the, in 1999, again, by this time, um, still, ERCOT was just voluntary. And, it was, and they had no um, regulatory authority. They're just like a traffic cop. And, and at a the time, they said, oh, well, Austin Energy, you may, maybe you need to build another power plant. Or, or we need to build uh, transmission lines up in northern Texas to make sure we have reliable power. That's really the key word. And, and the Public Utility Commission was the one that regulated it. But ultimately, the legislature has control over the Public Utility Commission as far as policies and rules and regulations. And then mm. Public Utility Commission implements it and regulates utilities. ERCOT was just a just kind of like the traffic cop. In 1999, we had the deregulation bill of the, of the state, and that was the legislature's uh, plan. And, and it was it was a long time to negotiate the, the entire bill. But basically, um, investor owned utilities then became deregulated, which meant you had competition. So um, in most like I think it's something like 70% of the state, it's investor owned utilities. And you can go in as a, like, for example, Green Mountain Energy was a competing entity, could go into that service territory and, and sell people electricity. Um, Austin Energy is a little bit different. In fact, very different. It's, dereg it's regulated still. So the deregulation bill of 1999 really amounted to like 70% of the state of Texas 
for investor-owned utilities to be, their service territory became deregulated. Right. And so an investor-owned utility, just to be clear, so that's like a private company, right? Mm-hmm. A private, and then up, yeah. as opposed to Austin Energy, that is owned by the city. Exactly. So the public utilities, all the municipal utilities and electric cooperatives were not part of the, the deregulation bill. They were exempt from it. They had the option to to uh, what they called opt in. If you want to become a regulate unregulated utility, you could do that. But most of them said, no, we're not going to do that. So Austin, as far as a utility, is self-regulated. They set their own rates by the pub, the um, city council. They you know run the utility themselves. And the Public Utility Commission really has no jurisdiction over them um, unless there's a rate uh, dispute. If somebody comes up and says, oh, wait, Austin Energy is not being fair, uh, and, and they can take a, a case to the Public Utility Commission. So 1999 changed everything. And, and actually, the interesting thing at that time was the environmental groups got together and and really got were a part of the negotiation of the bill. And that was where they set the goals for wind. Um, the, the advocates for the environment said, okay, we want to have an renewable energy goals. So that was the first set of goals set to launch our, our wind industry at that time. Um, so that was the point where ERCOT became all of a sudden very visible um, because the deregulated utilities um, were now part of this electric, Rel- electric reliability council of Texas and that council grew from like three people, ERCOT, to like 300 people within a couple of years. And, and they put together uh, protocols and, and the, all the things that were needed to run the grid for Texas. So wow. a, again, their, their whole goal in life is to create a reliable power pool of, of Texas connecting all the utilities and they're 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 a basically a traffic cop they say okay we need we've got these power plants over in west texas and we need power in the east and they and they it's kind of like a a stock market and this gets to your question about uh, you know the pricing of electricity okay so with ERCOT we have deregulation we have these utility i mean these privately owned um, utilities that get broken up into um, like the power generator, the transmission line, and the retail electric provider, those are called, right? Yes. The ones just like get delivering to customers. And then this creates then, as you mentioned, this creates like a market that's kind of stock markety. Can you explain this? Because this is pretty confusing, I think. It is. It's very confusing. So what happened, like you said, they broke it up into those three entities. And so one of those entities is a power plant provider. So these are all the power plants throughout the state that are generally run by gas or coal or nuclear and then the renewable energy power plants as well. So they become what's called a certified uh, power provider, a power plant uh, provider. And they build their own plant or you know, if they build a new one or they run the old ones. And then they have what's called a scheduling agent or somebody that schedules that power plant. And so, it becomes the whole network of the electric utilities that are connected by these wire companies. Uh, they pay a little fee 
and the and the customers all pay a fee to keep the transmission lines up and running. But then they they bid into this market that we're calling like a stock market of electricity. They say, well, tomorrow my 400 megawatt gas plant will be up and running and I'll have it running from two o'clock in the morning till two o'clock the next day or four days in a row or you bid it into the market. But the market is set by either what they call spot market prices, which is like an instantaneous price or a long-term price. Well, you can say, well, I'm going to, you pay me a certain amount for the year and it may be a low price, but you get that uh, for all the power that you put into it. So it becomes like a bidding market. And, and some of these guys are pretty clever because they say, well, we're going to wait till the price goes up and then we're going to bid our power into it and we'll run our power plant. So the, the ERCOT ends up being kind of like a broker that says, okay, hey, you guys, we, we're really short over in East Texas. So what's your price for electricity? And then they'll, they'll you know, turn their plants on. So it's become a, a competitive stock market type thing. And there are times when the prices drive up to this like skyrocketing price, like the, the market in the last few days has been $9,000 a megawatt. Can you explain this? Because this is something that I saw a lot going around on social media and things is the Public Utility Commission met on Monday, is my understanding, and realized that I think that's like the cap. I guess they do set like a max that the prices can go. And they realized that uh, the market was not operating at that max cap. And they went to ERCOT and said, you need to raise prices so that it is at that max cap because this is like, you know, the highest demand we have. But people were pissed about that because it felt like, well, why is this public utility commission meeting during this crisis just to raise electricity prices? Right. But the idea, and, and obviously there's like a whole lot of things we could talk about with that, if that's good or bad, but just like by the way the market is supposed to operate, why did they do that? It, it, when they deregulated? Or when they, you know, when they have these high prices, is it kind of like the way I have been told or understand it is it's almost like Uber, <laughs> like yeah. uh-huh. that, that what you, um, when there's not a lot of cars on the road, the price goes up, that brings more drivers out etc. Is that kind of the model here? It's exactly the model. They, they, they need power. They, it starts rising on that market. You know, they look at it every minute. It's kind of like the stock market and the prices rise, the prices rise. And, and a, if somebody has a power plant that's operable, they put it into the market and then they get that spot market price. So you, there are, we're talking to people, I was talking to people out their gas plant. They're saying, well, hell, I could pay back my whole year's worth of electricity that I need to sell in two days because the price is so high. So it, it's, it's a, a bidding market totally different than before deregulation, because at that point, then it would be, okay, everybody, you get your power plants up and running and we'll pull together and make sure we can keep everything running. It wasn't any kind of bidding war, any ways to go in and say, well, I, I'm not going to sell my power unless it goes up to a certain price. So it's become, that, that's, that's pure competition uh, in the power plant market. They've, they've developed this plan where you bid your your power into it and if you want to make a whole lot of money you can bid it at the tie times just like your your uber model so it's exactly right raising prices Mm -hmm. allows more is is the signal for more power to come online right but in theory in theory but but what happened here is that the weather was so cold uh, and the gas plants mainly the gas plants were not prepared for this and they 
they had the, a really bad cold spell going back in history in 1989 that the power plants, same thing, the power plants went down and they had to do rolling blackouts. And it was really because those gas plants, if you've seen them, you know, they're a huge plant and they've got boilers and generators, but outside they have control lines, these lines that control the, the on and off and different switches within the power plant, those lines froze because it got so cold. And, you know, we, they talk about Texas, well, it got cold for one day, but that's whenever you have sustained cold like this, those things freeze. So the power plants went down. And after that, the Public Utility Commission had a big investigation. They said, what happened? Why did these plants all go down? And this was even before deregulation. And they said, well, you guys have to fix those. Get down there and fix those, those problems. And sure enough, in 2011, the same thing happened and the power plants went down. And then the, again, in this in last week, but really um, it's, it's because I attribute this to competition because you can't force the people to the, those, those competitive plants to design for the worst case scenario. If you design anything, your house, your whatever, for the worst ever conditions, it's expensive. It costs a lot of money to design for that one hour or those three hours when it's going to be five degrees out. So they didn't do it. So a lot of the power plants did not prepare for this worst case scenario. And that's why they went down. So it wasn't that they couldn't bid into the market. They were down, not running. Right. It was irrelevant. The prices could raise, but it's like they were, they were all trying to get in. They couldn't. Yeah. There's no power plants to, to bid into it. So it, we were really close to collapsing the whole grid. That's Texas. what I heard. You heard that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So then where does Austin Energy fit into this? Because um, we are one of the few municipally owned utilities in the uh, state, along with San Antonio, also CPS Energy. How do we operate that's different? Well, we we are a regulated or deep. Well, no, no, no. Back that up. They are municipal utility. They're not regulated by the Public Utilities Commission, and they're not also uh, in in the competitive market. But they do. So they generate their own electricity. We have, you know, gas plants. We have Decker. We have a, a lot of power plants of our own. But we also buy from that marketplace. So the, we we buy um, when, when we need when we when it's short. We have to go into that market and buy electricity um, from the power pool. Um, but right, but- the w- the way it works, right? Is I think this is confusing for people too. Like the uh, trans the generation that Austin Energy owns. It's not as if that generation just gets generated and sent right to Austin, right? It just joins the regular grid. Yes, but but essentially we we get to and take credit for and enjoy the power that we generate first. I mean, we we if we have excess, then we put it into the the grid into the pool, uh, and then when we're short, we buy it from the from the market. And owning our own generation also allows Austin Energy to make money, right? In mm-hmm. order to offset our own bill. So it's beneficial for Austin Energy to have a generation that is going to earn money because then that can lower our electricity bills, right? Exactly. That's my understanding. Okay. Right. And, and a lot of other companies are envious of us because it's kind of a, a, an ideal situation where we're not regulated by anybody but ourselves, uh, but we can play into the market as well, you know, the, the, the power pool. Right. But we do have to listen when ERCOT tells us to do something, right? So that's what happened um, this week is that ERCOT went to all of the utility, you know, went to the Austin Energies, went to all the utilities and said, you've got to cut, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Austin Energy didn't have a, they couldn't say no. 
that, that's just they're part of those big grid part of the grid yeah they they they're obligated to do that um and so yeah they they started turning people's electricity off is essentially what happened but there were also parts of the city that we lost the power it wasn't purposely turned off and it was because we lost utility lines you know they would freeze and once you get ice on electric lines they get heavy and they they break and go down or trees fall into it so it was a combination of rolling blackouts we call where the city was turning off electricity to you know try to keep the state from from going down and from us from going down uh, but there were also areas in the city where you they couldn't provide electricity because the you know the switches were open because a tree maybe fell into a line and then they have to go out and try to clear that and get them back up and that's the more common source of electricity being down right in like normal times when there's a brief power outage is because of something like that it's something with austin energy it's a local thing that delivers electricity <laughs> that just like because of weather that goes down that's what normally happens as opposed uh-huh. to this which was like a grid situation exactly the whole grid was on, on teetering on just collapsing and the interesting thing is once it collapses it's it's a huge mess because it, it's really hard to get it back up and running you have to turn up open up all the switches all over the state and then uh, very methodically turn everything back on to get it up and running again so if we lost the whole grid it would have been days before they could come back up again. Wow. And and another thing, you know, I've been getting a lot of questions about is electricity bills. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you're not um, a mind reader. You can't figure out exactly what's going to happen. But can you give us a, a vague understanding of like, I guess people's electricity bills are probably going to be high. Well, yeah, there's no doubt. Um, it's similar to the same problem we had in 1987, not in 1989, when I was working at the utility that we had that cold spell and then people got these outrageous bills afterwards. And it was really because they were all electric homes that were heating their houses with electricity and they they just, their meter was turning. And that was a time where there are also kind of these conspiracy theories that everybody's meter was going fast because somebody hit a switch and made everybody's meter go fast. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Austin to, uh, you know, resolve it for people. There, there's a used to be a phone number. I think they still have it where you have a high bill complaint. You call in and say, "This is not right. My bill's too high." But people were running their electricity, so they're they've used a lot of electricity. So the Austin Energy is going to have to, you know, decide: Are they going to give anybody breaks? And I doubt they will. If you use that electricity, then they're going to charge you for it. And, and 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 that electricity, though, to be clear, those high bills are because people are using a lot of electricity. It's it's not necessarily directly related to the fact that prices had prices rose no. in ERCOT. Yes. It's not really about that because we have a set like Austin Energy already has a set rate. Like this is what we're going to charge you a certain number times how much you use. So yes. the problem is that people are just using a ton right now. Exactly. Your bill's going to go up because you used a lot, not because of the the high prices that we might have had to pay on the market. Because our, our plants were, I guess, I don't know the, actually the status of our power plants, whether they were running, but it, yeah, it will not have anything to do with uh, that. It, it, it may be, it will be passed through probably over time. Long term. Yeah. yeah. Because they are, Austin Energy and other utilities are allowed to, um, recover what's called the fuel charge and that's a pass-through and that goes up and down throughout but they can only change that i think once a year so maybe at the end of the year they'll say well wait we had to buy all this 
electricity on the market and it'll be spread among all customers and it will be a slight increase, but it has, it's not going to be this huge spike for your last month because you were running your electricity. Got it. Um, And then, you know, not to just poo-poo all over Austin Energy, I do want to explain really quickly that um, the one benefit of it being publicly owned, of course, is that we do have a say in it, right? Like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Um, and it is our city councils, the board of directors. And so when some of these bigger decisions are made, we at least get to we have a say in some, not in this like first electric bill that's just based on usage, but, you know, it is within the city's power to come up with low income plans and, and different things like that. Absolutely. That's one of the advantages, the huge advantages you mentioned that we can go down to the city council and talk to them and say, here, we, we think this is a good plan. Whereas if we were an investor owned utility, you have a board of directors that has nothing to say to any of the people except, you know, hey, pay the bill. And, and throughout the history of Austin, there have been times when people have said, hey, we need to sell the electricity, the utility have a corporation buy us but then everybody says yeah we do that but then we won't have the city council that we can go down and scream and yell to to make changes Um, so yeah there could be a negotiation where they say well this was not the fault of the people that we had this weather condition um, and that they shouldn't be bearing the brunt of it so it will be interesting to see how the city council reacts um, to the whole situation another thing that's come up in all of this is renewable energy um and this is an area that you have expertise. Like you said, you've, you've kind of watched renewable energy grow in Texas quite a bit. Can you talk about, you know, obviously there's all these rumors about the, the wind turbines freezing and things like that. But can you also just talk about, um, like, because Texas actually does have a lot of renewable energy, um, like how renewable energy fits into the market, I guess, in general. Yeah, good question. So wind power plants as we know and solar plants are what's called intermittent power you can't just turn it on and it and it runs it's whenever the the wind is obviously flowing and the sun is on is up um but so the the ERCOT uh guys folks look at it as that an intermittent uh, resource and so they give it a credit they say okay there's twenty thousand megawatts of wind actually in the ground, but at any time we can only give it a probability that it's up and running. So they give it, and I forget what the number is, but out of that 20 gigawatts, they, they say, well, we can probably rely on six gigawatts at, at any one time because the wind will be up and the wind will be down. And so that's what they did with these this time period. And actually the wind turbines were up and running and they were giving the pretty close to the percentage that they normally would give. Whereas, um, so that's that's the way they treat um, them on the market. They you can't say it's a hundred percent ever because they're not going to be up a hundred percent. Some will be doing well in the east. Some will be doing in the well in the west, and it, it, it varies obviously throughout the day. Whereas the natural gas plants, you you can hit a button and bring it up, and it should be running. Um, so it's it's di- it's treated as a different resource in, in the end. Right, and there are different ways. You know, one thing that's come up a lot is that. You know, you hear all these rumors that renewable energy isn't reliable. Now, of course, just like anything else, like we've heard, you know, the natural gas plants, the wind turbines that did freeze, anything can be weatherized if we decided to invest in it. So that's like, that's one thing. But um, there are a lot of things that can be done and are being done, right, to make renewable energy reliable in different times of day. Like I think you mentioned, you know, you can have 
wind and solar panels be in different parts of our big state. And then you're guaranteeing that, you know, at sometimes if it's not, if the wind's not blowing in one part of the state, maybe it is on the coast or vice versa. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're actually designing that into the system where they, they can say in the morning or throughout the afternoon, say the morning it's, it's better over by the coast and it's matching the load. So wind is, is given a lot of credit for that. And then later on in the day when the wind patterns increase in West Texas, then we give it a lot of credit over there and we turn, you know, turn those into the market. So it, it it's an intermittent source, but a lot of people are talking about what's going to help solve that is storage. And once we get batteries or some type of storage innovation, then, and that's going to take years, you know, five to 10 to 15 years, um, then we can have a completely different um, grid, if you will, that would be relying on, on wind and solar um, to be less intermittent if you take into account the batteries. But and yeah. storage seems big. I mean, if we had had storage now, right, that could have helped save us as well. If we had this energy that we knew we could tap into that had already been generated. Exactly. So you generate it when you're generating and when you're not using um, most of the, the wind, wind power or the solar power, you put it into batteries for later use. And, and that, I think, is going to be the future. I mean, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, it'll be storage will be part of the equation. And, and when you talk about reliability, they, the ERCOT people put a reliability number on gas plants for the reason we just had in the last few days, that they are, they're, they're not 100% reliable. They go down. And so they might give a gas plant a certain probability that it'll be online at any time in the day, similar to, to, to wind plants. And that's what happened. The, 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 the gas um, plants went down for several reasons, but one is that, you know, you know that the way we get gas is through big pipelines. And so these pipelines are all over Texas and it's, you know, then they get the natural gas and they need to get it to the power plants. Well, these big gas lines have what they call booster pump stations. So that boosts the pressure to be able to get it into the gas where you need it, into the power plants, into the people's houses. Well, they run by electricity. The pumps that run those booster pumps went down. They couldn't get the pressure up, so they couldn't run the gas plants. So it's kind of a vicious cycle that if they don't have electricity, they can't get gas and they can't get gas to get electricity. Yeah, that was one of the things I found most surprising. I didn't realize that um, so much of it was based on pipelines and that we didn't have just like, like the generation plants need a constant supply of natural gas coming at them. I didn't realize that I had kind of assumed that they had more on site, but it seems like that's not the way we've done things traditionally. Yeah, yeah. Those pipelines were, were stressed and under pressure, just like our water, you know, now right. we got a water problem too. So <laughs> mm-hmm. totally. I know one thing after another. Yeah. Um, one thing, you know, I'm wondering then about into the future and we talk about resiliency. Um, it's something that I'm sure is going to be on everyone's mind. Um, I know next week when the legislature meets again, this is going to be a huge topic of conversation, but what things can we be looking at? I know we kind of touched on them in conversation, but, um, that could make a more resilient grid. Do we see other States, other parts of the country doing things, other, uh, other countries doing things that make grids more resilient? What, what kind of things are out there? Well, let's, let's start with the policy um, end of it. I, I really think that there's going to be a lot of thought now about 
just deregulation and regulation. And, and maybe we'll be switching back a little bit towards a little more regulation and more of a hybrid where there can be a regulation that forces these power plants to weatherize or forces them to be up and running, even though the market price is not real high. Um, so I, I th I'm, I'm a sort of a proponent of a little bit more regulation because if you think about electric utility and electricity, it is a necessity for people. I mean, we found that out in the last week. So I it's know. For, it's all for the common good. And I do think, I think it was somewhat of a mistake back in 1999 to go to 100% deregulation because then you lose that um, does need to serve the public and, and electricity is one of those utilities that I think should be uh, something that's accessible and for the common good. So then from a technology standpoint, I think that that you're going to see uh, a bigger trend towards what I call microgrids and um, you know, distributed renewables. And nobody's really talking about that on this grand scale. They're talking about, oh, we need to get all these power plants up and running. There's going to be a trend towards resiliency in a local microgrid where you might take a neighborhood and have a power plant that, that run, maybe it's fossil fuel, but I would like to think that it's renewable with a battery system, solar, maybe it's wind, and you're all connected and you're not reliant on this huge grid and this huge... Uh, series of power plants, you've got your own control. And um, we're seeing that as in many countries and a lot of trends around the United States, where it's much more resilient to have your little local um, power plant and, and, and grid. And, yeah, and that's what I had heard. I know, I remember when, gosh, when was it like two years ago or something when Austin Water, we had that boil water notice before for almost a week, I think. And it was because our one, you know, I, a lot of conversation was around, wow, we're pretty vulnerable if we just have, you know, a handful of very big power plant, I mean, water, water plants, and one of them goes down, like all of a sudden, you know, we have no way for our citizens to get smaller amounts of water, what else can be done at a neighborhood scale to provide some water backup? I know that conversation happened. It seems like energy um, could be in the same boat with mm -hmm. solar panels on the roof and things like that. Yeah. I mean, think about it. If you had your own little power plant on your house, you have your solar panels, your battery, and you're, you're running along fine. You, you just you're dependent on yourself and maybe your neighbors, you know, rather than this massive centralized power plant. And, and we're seeing that with water too. Even just in the last few days, our water plants went down and it's because we have these huge water treatment facilities that, that uh, went down. They, they lost power. They couldn't get the pumps going and then things froze. And so I, I'm a, a proponent of microgrids, decentralized um, utility and, and, and on mostly on renewable energy as a future. And already mm -hmm. we're seeing that you know, in California when we had all these um, forest fires that the local water utilities couldn't, couldn't keep up and running. So they're building a little microgrid to mm -hmm. keep themselves ready to be able to provide water. Even if it's a centralized water plant, they can do things to have their own power plant and their own resiliency right there you know, includes batteries, a, a renewable energy source, and they can keep the water running. So that's what I think is in the future. And we'll see, you know, I, it, the other part of it will be that these power plants that have, we've been relying on that are fossil fuel run now, they're going to have to be forced 
to look at themselves and figure out how to spend the extra money to make it reliable. And again, that that's the big word for utilities, reliability. We want to be up and running to serve the public. Great. Well, I think that's pretty much all my questions, John. I, I really appreciate it. This is so helpful. There's a so much flying around, so much information and misinformation. And so I'm glad we were able to clear things up for folks. Good. Well, I hope I helped out a little bit. And it's a complicated uh, issue. And that's what I think is exciting about it. And we will be having hearings for sure about it with the Public Utility Commission, Austin Energy's City Council. And I, I encourage all of our listeners and, and everybody who is, has been suffering over these last uh, few days that don't have electricity to, to get involved and, and tell people what you think we should be doing to make sure we have a resilient and reliable electric system and, and water. Definitely. And I'll remind folks that on the Austin Commons um, Instagram page, um, we're posting a lot more immediate resources. If you're still without electricity, water, food, things like that, we're posting up-to-date info um, there as well. That's at the underscore Austin underscore common. Um, and I think that's pretty much our show for today. Um, I hope you all are doing um, well and are safe and um, looking forward to, we'll keep up with this story and continue to share out information as it, as it becomes available. All right, and that's our show for today. You can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. As always, you can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. This show is hosted by me, Amy Sansbury, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM.